sound issues, which you probably heard. I also want to point out before we dismiss everybody, there's separate groups. Uh, this weekend, this Sunday is Mother's Day. So moms, please uh, come back this weekend and join us. Please invite somebody. We're also teaching one verse. I might even break it up into two sermons, church. John 3.16. I'm seriously tempted to break it up into two separate sermons just because that verse is so important. Anyway, uh, kids are now dismissed to Kingdom Kids, young adults with Pastor Jim, Pastor Steve's class, everyone else. We are in Hebrews chapter 6. And JJ wants everybody to know it's his birthday coming up very soon. So, seven years old. Don't blink, right, Gracie? Don't blink. Hebrews chapter 6. I just hope. Oh, no, I meant the air conditioning. No, 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 turn me on. Need the power. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see you. So what's happening? Anything new, exciting? She's good. Melissa, how are you? She's doing her uh, queen wave. Hello. Do we know when the baby's coming yet, babe? Everybody's asking me. Has the baby let you know? Has it scheduled an appointment yet? Yes. That would be convenient. All right, Hebrews chapter 6. Okay, so what we're going to do tonight is uh, we're going to teach through this passage, and then I can almost guarantee that this passage, more than other passages, is going to lead to probably some questions or conversations. So I'm going to try to teach this as efficiently as I can, as thoroughly as I can, as clearly as I can, but also uh, try to leave some time for us to discuss, to talk. Maybe you have questions about what this uh, passage could say, does say, and um, this is not a uh, necessarily easy one to understand. But even before we dive into it, even before I read it, I can remember, and perhaps you can too, and perhaps this was years ago for you, or perhaps this is even recent for you, there were two real revelations that came to me when the Lord brought me from some kind of nominal, traditional faith. You know what I mean by that? That was churchianity and not Christianity. That was religion and not relationship. 
That wasn't devotion. That was just mere appeasement, checking things off the religious checklist. And then Christ captures your heart. Christ saves you. And then all of a sudden, what? Because you believe, you see. Because you believe, you hear. Because you believe, you feel. It all flows from the Holy Spirit and the work, the sanctifying, saving, powerful work that the Holy Spirit does in us when we come to know Christ, Christ truly, Christ in our hearts. As we've been studying uh, on Sundays in the Gospel of John, we are made new, made alive, born again. Hallelujah. Now, not only when we come to know Christ and perhaps uh, some of us, we grew up in Christian homes, so we're, we're not really sure when that happened, even though the Bible would submit that it did happen at some point. We passed over, as the Bible says, from darkness to light. When we step into the light, we see in that light Christ in all of his beauty. Now, of course, we enter into it. We try to understand it for the rest of our lives. But it's not just Christ that we see in the light with new eyes. It's also his word. So I had certain perceptions about Jesus that when you're saved, when you're born again, those perceptions, or I should say misperceptions of Jesus, start to crumble and fall and fade away. Secondly, and simultaneously, not by accident, so does your understanding of this book. And I remember uh, before I came to know Christ, I remember thinking this book was more like a religious artifact Perhaps for some of us, it was a family heirloom. You know, we had one big Bible center in the uh, living room, perhaps, and there's candles, and perhaps there's pictures, and the Bible was there. Now, nobody read it, but the Bible was there. Perhaps for us, it was a religious artifact. Perhaps for us, it was a family heirloom. Perhaps for us, it just didn't play any part in our lives at all, none whatsoever, So when you come to Christ and then you see Jesus for who he is, but then you also see the Bible and you start to read it with a new heart and with new eyes. And you start to see that this isn't just a collection of fables. This is not just a long list of morality tales and the heroes who were able to obey them. No, this is in fact a gospel narrative. It's a redemption story about who God is. And what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. So when you start to read the Bible, there's several things that all of a sudden just start coming to mind. And one of them, I think one of the most powerful ones, is not only its clarity, but its unity. Can we say those two words together? It's what? Clarity and it's unity. What do I mean by that? Well, that yes, we'll spend an entire lifetime, in fact, we could spend a hundred lifetimes trying to understand the miracle that is your Bible and still try to wrap our minds around its truth and all of its implications. But it's clear. It is clear. Also, that this is 66 books written over a couple thousand years, all these different authors at different times, at different places, right? And yet, one central message. Ironically enough, that's what makes John 3.16 so beloved. It summarizes uh, so much of what the Bible proclaims. What is my point in, in coming to this? I believe the Bible is clear. I believe the Bible is unified. Yet, when we come to passages like we're going to study tonight, it's going to raise some questions. 
it's going to raise some legitimate questions. Friends, if you thought last week's passage was a wake-up call, last week's passage, if you have your Bible open, I'll even read it. It was from the end of uh, Hebrews chapter 5. The author of Hebrews is taking a break from his description and explanation of the royal priesthood of Christ. And he said this, about this I have much to say. I'm in verse 11 of chapter 5. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish, what does it say? Good from evil. Okay, so last week was a challenge, a challenge, a challenge for us, perhaps if we have been stationary, perhaps if we have been apathetic in our faith, in our understanding, our knowledge of God, and our pursuit of Christ as we read about him in his word, Perhaps we need to move on from the milk to the solid food. Well, if we thought that was a challenge to truly dive deep into Scripture, the author of Hebrews is going to give us an example of what that challenge looks like. Oftentimes, many of us know this. There is something sweet and beautiful with things that are easily understood initially. There's something sweet and beautiful about things understood initially, meaning that when you hear it the first time, you get it, and it's a wonderful gift. How many of us also know that there's a gift sometimes when you have to work to understand it? How many of us know it's a gift when you have to literally roll up your sleeves and dive in because it's not abundantly clear right out of the gate, right out of the onset You can hear it and then all of a sudden think to yourself, well, how does this line up with not only other passages in Scripture, how does this line up with other passages in the book of Hebrews? What we're going to see is that the message of Hebrews is unified. This is still about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Not only unified, but even when it doesn't seem like it's clear, that's an invitation. As he said in the previous passage, all right, Let's put the sippy cup down. Let's get out our fork. Let's get out our steak knife. And let's have a big meal. Because while this might be hard to understand initially, it's for your good. In the same way it was for their good, it's for our good as well. Are you curious yet? (laughs) Here we go. All right. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you always ask, what's the therefore what? Therefore. Good job. We already talked about that. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from, what does it say? It's important. Dead works and of important faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's stop right there. This is kind of the bridge. What he's doing, he's building upon the end of chapter 5, and now he's going to connect it to the principles and the analogy he's going to use here in chapter 6. So he's saying he's laid a foundation. Every single house has a foundation. 
Without the foundation, there would not be a house. Without the foundation, the house would not what, church? Be secure. You wouldn't know the shape of the house. Any kind of storm would come and knock the house over. So the foundation's been laid. Is he saying the foundation isn't important? No. Is he saying it's not important to remember the foundation, return to the foundation? In fact, everything built upon the foundation necessitates the foundation. You tracking with me? So what is he saying? He's not saying, all right, let's leave the elementary teachings of Christ behind. When he says that, he's not saying, okay, let's leave Christ himself behind. He's saying, okay, we've been through this. We've talked about repentance of dead works, and we'll talk about that. We talked about faith in God. So what he's priming the pump, what he's preparing us to hear is something of profound importance, even if it creates intellectual dissonance. He's about to say something that is really hard for us to understand. And let me just say this as a disclaimer and as an aside. This passage is one of the most debated passages in all your Bible. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? <laughs> it is. And you'll see why in a second. So if you feel comfortable taking notes in your Bible, feel free to underline a couple words with me as we dive directly into this principle, this warning. This is the first warning passage, first legitimate warning passage of the book of Hebrews here in verse 4. Okay, here we go. For it is impossible. I want you to underline that word impossible. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted, underline taste, tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then, I want you to underline this, then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their harm and holding him up to contempt. Pause, reflect, take it in. Is it possible for Christians to fall away? In fact, this passage brings up a lot of questions, right? Do true Christians fall away? Can true Christians lose their salvation? Do Christians need good works to get saved? Do Christians need good works to keep themselves saved? Is this passage about God disciplining those who are saved? Everybody following with me? Okay, not really. Okay, is this passage about those who are saved but show little fruit, which I think Paul's alluding to in 1 Corinthians 3. So, is it about any of those things? I would submit to you no. I would submit to you no. That this isn't necessarily teaching that Christians, true Christians, regenerate, elect, regenerate, saved, adopted Christians can fall away or lose their salvation. I don't think this is somehow suggesting in contradiction to everything else Hebrews says, in fact, all the Bible says, that Christians need good works to be saved. And I don't think it's saying that, as we will see, Christians need good works to stay saved. I don't think this passage is necessarily about this disciplining those who are truly saved. And I don't think this is necessarily about those who bear very little fruit. 
So how do we understand this passage? Well, there's two phrases that make it difficult. Okay? Once again, initially and intellectually makes it hard. The first ones I would submit to you are fallen away. They have fallen away. It says in verse 6, and then have fallen away. To be honest, and that's where a lot of people spend their time debating in this passage. It's, it's an issue of the perseverance of the saints. What does that mean? That means that those who are truly Christian remain Christian to the end, not because of the Christians, but because of the Christ who saved them and carries them home. Okay? Do Christians remain Christians, true, regenerate, saved Christians until the end? But to be honest, I think the even harder question, is that word impossible? Impossible. Right out of the gate, he says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good of the word of God and the powers that come and then have fallen away. It's impossible what? To restore them again to repentance and then mercy, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, I think it's important to hear what he's not saying, right? So let's hear what he is saying. The person or the people in mind, the words and the descriptors he uses are enlightened. Okay, and then he uses tasted three times. Two times explicitly and then one implied. Tasted the heavenly gift, shared the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, and tasted the powers of the age to come. Is this referring to truly saved Christians? What does this passage not say about these people? Notice now it doesn't use other very, very important language, right? It doesn't use the word elect, meaning God's chosen it does not use the words, for example, saved. It doesn't use the word adopted. It doesn't use the word regenerated. It doesn't use the word redeemed or justified or sealed or even bride. It doesn't even use the word for these people, beloved, until we get later down in the passage. And that's why context is so important. Let's jump down to verse 9. We will return to those Three verses there, four through six, because they're so hard to understand. But I do want to help us understand who I believe he's writing to, okay? Right out of the gate. So he says this, though we speak in this way, I'm in verse nine, Hebrews six, yet in what? Your case, though we speak in this way, yet in what? Your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. You see, he's making a comparison. He's making a comparison to those who have tasted, 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 shared with those who are the beloved. Yet in your case, we feel sure of better things, as if to say, comparative, you're not going to fall into this trap. Better things, things that belong to, and there's the word, what? Salvation, okay? For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Verse 11, and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness and underline this, friends, and to have what? The full assurance of hope. Can we say that together? The full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those 
who through faith and patience inherits the promises. Okay. Is there either assurance or is there hope in the idea that either my good works have to save myself or let's say this, God has forgiven me up to a point and now it's up to my acts, my penance, my confession, my good deeds to keep me saved. Does that lead, if we're going to be brutally honest, does that lead to real assurance or hope? I would submit to you not because then in what? What is our hope? Where is our hope? Our hope's found in ourselves. And that's not the hope that the book of Hebrews professes, okay? So I want you to keep your finger right here in Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to jump around. We don't even have to go to other passages in Scripture. And there are some amazing proclamations of God's sovereign assurance and the security of believers. But let's even jump back to the passage in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and then we'll jump later on. Okay, so if our hope, if our assurance is our ability to stay in Christ, then some of these other passages don't make sense. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And what's our confession? Is our confession us? Is our confession about our holiness, our righteousness, our fidelity and faithfulness, our perfection before a perfect God? No. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with, what's that word? Confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. No, our confession is in Christ. Our hope, our confidence is in the finest, finished final work of Jesus on the cross, okay? It's all grace. It's always grace. It's all about God's grace. So what is the author in Hebrews trying to do? Whoo, here it is. Here's the warning. This is how I understand it, okay? I don't claim to be a great Bible teacher, but here's how I understand it. I think one of the most subtle and evil dangers in any church are people that are sitting in the church that have perhaps, like this passage says, tasted and tasted and tasted, shared, maybe even been enlightened in some way, but are not truly saved. So, the author of Hebrews is not only proclaiming a message, right? He's proclaiming a message. This is why many people, and I agree with them, I, I don't think this is the Apostle Paul writing the book of Hebrews. I think this is a proclaimer. I think this is a preacher. I think all of Hebrews, like all of the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, is one big sermon, okay? He's proclaiming a message. But he's not just a preacher. He's a good pastor. Do you think he's trying to just unsettle Christians for the sake of making them feel guilty? No. How does 1 Corinthians 13 describe love? Yes, love is patient. Love is kind, right? But love rejoices in what? The truth. You see, real love speaks truth. Real love, what, friends? 
warns. Real love warns. Now, okay, let me, let me go 10,000 feet up. Let me even back away, okay, as if to say, if Christianity is all just about traditions and rituals, if it's really just a religious social club, then this doesn't matter, <laughs> right? If this is all just about being nicer, kinder, more appropriate civil people, not a bad thing, but that's why we gather, then none of this really matters. Why would the author of Hebrews say such an unsettling, startling truth? Because it really does matter. In fact, I would submit to you, friends, this is what matters the most. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, the gospels of first importance. I heard somebody say, and I'm going to probably say it again this weekend, that uh, the chances of a young kid, and perhaps you have young children, or perhaps you used to have young children, or perhaps you have grandchildren, whatever it may be, the percentage of a young kid going and becoming an international famous sports star is like uh, three thousandths of a percent, right? Three thousandths of a percent. This author said this. We work so hard to get our kids the right extracurricular activities, the right sports, get them trained, they go to camp, they get all this uh, uh, training and teaching and all this stuff about their sports. Three thousandths of a percent. Whereas the reality is every single child, 100%, will have to stand before God one day. Every single one. Are they prepared? Do they know what that is? Do they know the God that is? The God of the Word. God of Christ. Are they prepared? So the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, all right, it wasn't politically correct then. It's not politically correct now. He even knows that he has to come alongside them at the end and remind them of the assurance that true believers have. But he is. He's trying to... Wake up the sleeper, as the book of Ephesians says. He is trying to help people see that you could sit in church, you could taste of the word of God and say, wow, that is intellectually stimulating. That is very practically helpful. You might even get some warm fuzzies. You might even get some goosebumps every once in a while. You might even feel like you're a better person by coming to church and hearing about Jesus. Do you know him? Oh, it's so serious. I'm going to try not to get too emotional here. It's really, really important. It's love. This is love. We get this? Love not only says, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Love says, do you know the one who sits on the throne of grace? Right? Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 7. Might as well say another passage that uh, not many people teach, not many people hear or focus on. Might as well, right? We're already in the deep end. Let's go. Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? and in your name perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says this, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoer. 
So in, in the beginning, it's all about doing, but the doing, as Jesus says, comes from the knowing. There's this wall of hostility, as the book of Colossians says, right? There's this separation. The Bible says we're dead in our sins, we're enemies in our minds to God, right? Do we know him? Now, the analogies that Jesus uses, I think, are even more intense than the analogies that Hebrews uses. Hebrews uses ones of taste and sharing and experience. Jesus says, I I think almost trying to get our attention, he's using the biggest examples of religious knowledge and power there is, right? What does he say? First, if we prophesy in your name, meaning that if we have the ability, if we're not talking about prophesying as preaching, but prophesying as predicting, he's saying, if we can tell future events and we say it's in your name, right? If we prophesy in your name and what? Drive out demons. Not only predict the future, but tell demons to get out. Drive out demons and even perform miracles. Even if we could perform miracles. Listen, if I could perform miracles, drive out demons and tell you what tomorrow is going to look like, you think the church has been growing now. Look out. All of a sudden, everybody in this state, in the country, would be here. Some of them trying to kill me, I think, but they would be here. Why? Because you would all think, whoa, this guy's tuned in. He's connected with God. He's a true prophet. He's a true miracle worker. He's a true fill-in-the-blank. And Jesus says, even if you do all those things, you don't know him, he's going to say, be gone from me evildoer. Oh my, this is always about relationship. This is always about union. This has always been about supernatural internal transformation. That's where our hope is found, and that's where our assurance is found. So jumping back to Hebrews, he uses this analogy, right? He uses this analogy in verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But it bears thorns and thistles. It is worthless and near, near to being cursed, and it is in the end to be burned. Strong language, once again. Thank you, author of Hebrews. You know who else talked this way? Jesus, very good, and John the Baptist. I think the, the passage that Jesus uses about burning up the chaff in John 15, I'm, I, think, I do think that means more of sanctification. I think those are people in the vine. I think that the passage that's very helpful for this is Matthew 3, where John the Baptist is speaking to a bunch of religious Pharisees, a bunch of people that you would be very, very impressed by. As I often say, these would be the men that you would want your daughter to marry. On the outside, very, very moral very, very respected, right? They were obeying the, it would seem, Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. They were obeying the letter of the law to a T, dotting every I, right? And what does he say? That God, is, his kingdom is coming like an ax and it is going to lay waste like a sickle, cutting off all the chaff. And he says to the Pharisees, straight faced, no wonder they wanted to dismiss him or they wondered even if he was the Messiah. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay? So what's the analogy here used in Hebrews? The analogy here is to say, if there's no fruits of true salvation, 
meaning God in you, like God in us, then perhaps we should have an honest conversation with God, okay? Now, I'm preaching in the choir here tonight, okay? I get that. But the truth is that the author of Hebrews knew that there's probably some people in his church, and there's probably some people in every church that needs to hear this message. I love how, for example, let's use uh, Paul as an example, okay? Everybody loves Paul. Everybody loves Paul, his theology, his assurance, all his beautiful, bold proclamations, okay? In the beginning of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, he said that he who began the good work will see it to completion. It is a promise of assurance. But you know what he also says later on in that same book? So now work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Well, Paul, I thought you just said, man, it's all good. Like God's going to, he's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. He's never going to forget me. Why do I have to work out this salvation with fear and trembling? This doesn't make sense. You see how the Bible is unified. How do we make sense of this? Both are true. Both are absolutely true. Okay? He who began the good work will, hallelujah, see it to completion. For those who are saved, for those who are born again, you see, God doesn't adopt people and then unadopt them. You can't get justified and then unjustified, right? He doesn't pay for all of your sin except for those sins. It's not how it works. That's why there's so many assurances of salvation in Scripture. Here's my point. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for. Get that? Why? Friends, why? Because those who are truly saved know that it's God. God working it out. Amen? Like, not just in theory. Not, and I get it. We have bad days. We have hard days. We sin. We stumble. We fall. I am, as Paul says, the worst of all sinners. But if it's God in you, if that's the root, then there should be fruit. Now, if this all of a sudden becomes about, well, is my fruit big enough or is my fruit growing enough or is my fruit as fruity as the other person's fruit sitting next to me? That's between you and the Lord. If it was all about our fruit determining our faith, then you would submit to yourself that David must be in hell. David the adulterer. There must have been no hope for him. Yet for whatever reason, God said, he's a man after my own heart. And he was the example for all kings to follow. Man, if if it's all about the fruit keeping my faith, if it's all about fruit, my fruit being the root, my fruit being my faith, then Peter must be in hell as well. Because he denied Jesus flat out in front of a little girl. And yet Jesus, what? Gives him assurance of salvation by asking him three times, the same number of times that he denied Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, his name was the rock. And God used that rock to build the church, right? So how do we understand this, friends? Well, hopefully, we'll have a little discussion right now. Hopefully, this leads us to not run away from the Bible, to not run away from hard passages to understand, but what? Roll our sleeves up and run into the Bible. In fact, I would submit to you that if we really understand the stakes, 
those who truly know the Lord, I get it, we're busy, we're tired, we're distracted, we're entangled in sin, I get it. Those who truly know the Lord run into the Bible, right? So, I think there's no better way to conclude this study, and I do want to have a Q&A, I do want to have question time, but to allow God's word to interpret God's word, right? So let's turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, and we'll close. Hebrews 10 says this in verse 11. Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has what? Perfected for what? All time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to this, to us, after, after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Let me jump down to read what we read at the beginning of our service. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Any questions? Thoughts? You know what I didn't even get to? I didn't have time. How do we understand impossible? 